Either way, you're gonna get us all killed! The size of that thing! I can't. It's too big. Sorry, sweetheart. I haven't got time for anything else. I know you wanna. I know you wanna. I know you wanna. Hi guys and welcome back to another episode of Just The Tip Podcast. I'm your host Georgette and as always you can follow me at just underscore Georgette on Twitter and Instagram and you can also follow the podcast at Just The Tip Pod on Twitter and Instagram as well. Don't forget to hashtag JTT Pod and also if you have come across the quickie which is my new visual concept that I'm doing on Twitter and Instagram, um, have a look, comment use the hashtag JTTPod and also the quickie. Let me know what you think, what else you you want me to film, what you want me to review. Um, Yeah, it's gonna be, it's gonna be fun. It's gonna be a fun year. Also, I am joined by an amazing guest to talk all things sexual health, specifically women's, blur? Women's (laughs) reproductive wellbeing issues. There we go. And, even though this is predominantly woman-based, I still think any men that are listening should keep listening because you never know when you might need to know some stuff. So yeah, I'm gonna let you introduce yourself. Uh, Hi, my name is Sashan Firon-Josephs. I run an organization called The Womb Room and we support people who have reproductive health problems to understand how to manage their reproductive wellbeing. yeah, that's it yeah. in a very brief nutshell. <laughs> no, we're going to get into like all of it. So that's fine. Thank you so much for joining me again. I really appreciate it. But before we get there, let's do some icebreakers. So my first one for you, because I was thinking, you know, like it's a new year and people tend to make like resolutions and all of that good <laughs> shit. I actually have. Wait, have I made any resolutions this year? Uh, No, I didn't. But I did make a vision board for the first time Hmm. um which i thought let me try and kind of visualize what i want the year to look like i went to a vision board party on new year's eve really yeah my friend like did a little dinner at her house and um we all forgot to bring magazines so we didn't actually make our vision boards (laughs) (laughs) it was just so did you do drinking yeah just drinking but we made a gratitude list of like things that we were grateful for from the last year and like what we wanted to carry on and be grateful for in the new year so it was quite nice, pretty chill. I might do that this year. That's that's really cool. Like I, so like I was doing my vision board into New Year's Day um, and it, it just felt really nice to just set my intentions. Mm. And um, like, I don't usually go out anyway, but just, I was really calm. I was at peace, I was at home. Mm. I, I had my stuff, I was watching TV and I was just like, this is nice. This is how I would like my New Year's to start. So yeah, yeah, proper cool. Okay, so um, icebreaker okay. number one: What is one sexual related New Year's resolution you'd make for yourself? Oh my days! Yeah. Um, hmm, to have more orgasms. Yes, definitely, definitely, 100%. <laughs> definitely. That's a really good one. I'd like to add that as well. I think everybody should. Definitely. Definitely should. <laughs> um, okay. Um, the second one, excluding the bedroom, what, this sentence doesn't make sense. When was I typing this? What's some of your favorite? 
Yeah. Okay. Excluding the bedroom, what are some of your favorite sex? Sorry, this doesn't make any <laughs> flipping sense. What are some of your favorite settings to have sex? Yeah, like your favorite places, I'm assuming. Yeah. Okay. okay. I knew what you were trying to say. Let me do it again. Excluding the bedroom, what are some of your favorite places to have sex? <sighs> hmm. Parks. Mm. Are you an outside person? Definitely. Yeah. I've tried the steam room, but it's just too, it's too hot. You tried to have sex in a steam room? No, I did. (laughs) (laughs) It was too hot though. Wait, so like, okay, what's the story? I was just, I I wasn't just at the gym meeting a random person. (laughs) But um, the person that I was seeing at the time, we used to go to the gym together a lot. And the gym that we went to had a sauna and a steam room. Because it was like really early in the morning, like mm-hmm. five, six o'clock. Nobody was in there. Kind of gave each other the eye. And yeah, the rest is now podcast history. Did you lock it? No. So anyone could have just... Yeah. <laughs> See, I just feel like, like I love a sauna. I love a steaming, but I always get to that point where I'm too hot. And I'm yeah. just like, it's time to go. Definitely. So how are you, uh, how are you having sex in a... In a steam room? As steam rooms go, it wasn't the steamiest that I've ever been okay, in. Okay, fine, fair enough. Which was maybe made it more practical. Yeah. Because I went to a steam room the other day and it was so hot. I was in there for about five minutes and <laughs> I was like, like nah, no, no, need to leave. Oh. So, uh, yeah. I'd say parks are probably my favorite. Yeah. Particularly if they've, sounds so bad. Particularly if they've got like play equipment. <laughs> particularly on the swing yeah. or like on Those, the slide. Those like big basket swings. Oh gosh, yeah, sorry. Right. Those big basket swings, particularly helpful. You've had sex in one of those? Yeah. That is so cool. That's that's adventurous. That's that's very cool. Was it like moving as It well? was moving, yeah. I feel like you can get a good rhythm going. Was it dark? A few times it has been, a few times it hasn't. Because <laughs> when it's summertime, it doesn't get dark till really late. It's, it's very true. That's very, very true. That's really cool. Or you, that's kind of like um, like a sex swing that that you'd have like in your house. Yeah, because there's just like a regular swing. My thighs are too big, so you just it yeah. doesn't it just yeah. doesn't work the but logistics of it on the massive basket one. Yeah. Oh, you're just yeah. giving me an idea. I think there's a park near my house as well. <laughs> okay. Um. What is your go-to feel-good sex position? Oh, that is a good question. Oh, okay. Mm. Okay, feeling good for me or for the other person? For you. Okay. For me, I'm going to be really basic and say doggy. But then for the other person, yeah. I was like trying to work my way through the Kama Sutra. Yeah. And um, there's this one position where he will like lie on his back and then put his feet up against the wall. So if you can just lie imagine like, back. so yeah, I so said like you're lying on the floor, you're lying on the bed or whatever. Yeah. And then you put your feet up against the wall. Yeah. And then you sit in between his legs. Yeah. And then just work your magic. Back and forth, up and down. Oh, wow. Yeah, apparently it feels incredible. Really? So that, yeah. So like they're, hamstrings are up against the wall. Oh. And then you'd be like facing one of their legs because you're sitting in between their legs sideways. 
Okay. So they're like that way and you're like that way. Obviously, if you're listening, you're not going to be able to see what I'm doing. No, so kind of like (laughs) scissoring, but upright. Yeah. Oh. I quite like it. I'm actually going to make a mental note of that one because that sounds really good. (laughs) Um, Okay, and then, so I was actually thinking about this this morning. I love doggy, but sometimes it's so like life or death. Like, there's a certain, like, I don't want to say pain, but like, there's a certain pleasure slash pain yeah. with with doggy. Yeah. And obviously, it can feel good for the guy. It's a great visual. That's great. But like, sometimes, you know, when they're like really going for it and you're like, slow down. Slow, yeah. <laughs> just, just let it breathe. Just, <laughs> like, my go-to. So I rarely say stop, but I always say wait. Yeah. So I'm like, wait, 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 wait. And then someone's like, what am I waiting for? And I'm like, I just need a minute. Like, yeah. I just need to breathe. I, I just need to breathe. <laughs> oh. I think as well, it's like, because it's a position where you can have like deeper penetration. Yes, that's what it is. It can be really intense. Yeah. And if your cervical canal is, your vaginal canal is quite short and they're quite big, well, it depends on the size of their penis, yeah. or like if you're using a sex toy or whatever, that can make it more intense yeah. because you can be hitting the wall of the cervix. Yeah, And then you can uh, get like cervical bruising and that can be really painful. Honestly, like sometimes I'm like, I can feel this in my brain. Like it's just, but I do love it though. I feel like it hits all the right Yeah, spots. it's like seriously. Yeah. And if, if you've got a good enough arch, yeah yeah straight in straight through oh I, the only problem i think is like i feel like as a guy you've got to be able to maintain the stamina 100 percent. because i hate when you get into like a crescendo and then they're like <laughs> and i'm like hello what about the rest of us wait, wait, no, i'm not done like i can get a, a bit um forceful and I'm just like don't stop I'm like don't don't move don't change don't stop like literally (laughs) keep it exactly like this oh because it does kind of get to like that point where it's it's just that build up as well Mm. so you're like please don't stop because this just feels too good yeah I think I might have so I've, I've cried during sex twice and I think one of those might have been in doggy from the pleasure from it just being like intense the first time was missionary but it it, it just felt magical mm, that's interesting yeah that's interesting i've cried i've probably cried about it twice so yeah but i think it was hormonal because i just felt really overwhelmed oh. <laughs> <laughs> i yeah, can't like, even say it's because the sex was really no, great it's, it, it's been me just feeling very it's it's just really intense mm. and i just feel like I'm I'm consuming this person and they're also just yeah just just taking like all of me and I'm just like oh my gosh this is amazing I feel so good oh my god you hit all the right spots and then I just cry. Um, the only other time I get tears is when I masturbate. So really yeah like every time I get like a few little tears <laughs> that come out the side of my eye and I don't oh my know god. I don't know why I've <laughs> had that before actually yeah like I'm never no like i've had times where i'm just i'm so proud like of myself yeah because i'm just like <laughs> gold stars for you me. did that like <laughs> look how good you make yourself feel oh yeah i've never had a tear from masturbating yeah 
Okay, right. So I want to get into the womb room. Okie doke. And yeah, so so like I want to start from the beginning. Like how did the womb room come about? Also a really great name. Thanks. Yeah, really cool name. Shout out to my mom because the name is actually her idea. Is it? Yeah. That's so cool. We were like in my kitchen at home. And I was like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to call this thing that I've started. And mm-hmm. my mom was like, why don't you call it the womb room? And I was like, okay, we'll go with that. <laughs> and it's just stuck. No, like I really like it. But yeah, yeah. so from from the beginning, like how did this, how did it come about? So um, when I was in my first year of uni, yeah. which now feels like a lifetime ago, yeah, but it was only 2010. And um, wow, whole decade, mad. 2010, wait, when was, oh, that's when I was graduating. Wait, was I? When did I go to uni? <laughs> yeah, I went to uni in 2007. Wow. Fuck, that was a long time ago. <laughs> Jeez. Anyway, carry on. Yeah, so when I was in my first year of uni, um, I, I tried loads of different contraceptives. So yeah. I... In comparison to some people um, that I know, I think I kind of became sexually active later, not the latest, but I was like 18, nearly 19 before I had sex for the first time, Mm. which was probably a surprise to most people Mm. who know me because I was that person who was always talking about sex. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, you're always talking about what you're not having. Yeah. But um, I tried loads of different contraceptives. I tried like loads of different types of pill and just none of them were agreeing with my body. Um, so I went to my doctor when I was in my first year of uni. It was like December, 2010 yeah. and um, December 14th. And she was like, oh, why don't you have a marina coil fitted? It's a long um, lasting form of contraception. You don't have to worry about it for like five years. I was like, okay, cool. Yeah. Not gonna have all the same hormonal effects. Yeah. Don't have to worry about getting pregnant fantastic and i had the coil fitted it was such a painful process um my cervix just does not like being touched yeah so that was really difficult and then she was like oh you're gonna have some discomfort but it should settle down within the next like 24 to 48 hours that did not happen um and at the time i was working like 16 hour shifts at the london bridge hospital flip and because it was like christmas break from Mm -hmm. uni and um they were paying triple pay, so okay, I was definitely going to work. Fine, fine, fair enough. <laughs> so I was doing these six hour shifts and I was just like, I am in excruciating pain. And my pain was getting worse. And within like the first week of having the coil fitted, I put on a stone just in water weight. And I was like, this is not normal. So wait, so for anybody that, that doesn't know, where do they attach the coil? So they insert the coil, it like sits, at the opening of the cervix to stop any sperm getting through. Um, And the marina coil, unlike the copper coil, has a really low dose Mm -hmm. of, I think it's progesterone Mm -hmm. um, that it releases, um, which is helpful if you want to have a form of contraception and you don't want to have really heavy periods because one of the um, cons, I guess, of the copper coil is there's no hormone, but you tend to have heavier and painful periods when you take, okay. when you have it. Yeah. Um, and some people, if you've already got a painful period, you definitely yeah, don't no, want to make real. it worse. And then, um, did they tell you about the possibility of 
gaming yeah, so you have to sign a little form that basically says that you won't you understand that the risks are that your womb could be perforated um you could get pelvic inflammation yeah. etc and that basically you're not going to sue them um but i don't think I didn't expect it to have the adverse effect that it had. So I went to A&E and the doctor was like, oh yeah, you've got pelvic inflammatory disease. Um, but we're not gonna take it out. We're not gonna take the coil out because we don't want you to sue us if we perforate your womb removing it. That's what they said. That's what the doctor said to me in A&E. So I was like, right, okay what am I supposed to do? Cause this was like, I went to A&E about two weeks after I'd had it fitted. Yeah. And I was like, at this point, I've now put on like a stone and a half, nearly two stone in oh just water. God. And I was in excruciating pain. And um, he was like, here's some antibiotics and here's some painkillers. Uh, when you go back to uni, see your doctor who fitted it and they'll take it out for you. And I was like, okay, fine. But I think it's that, like I was 19, I didn't really know how to advocate yeah. for myself very yeah. effectively. So I went back to my doctor at uni in January, it's like a whole month later. Mm-hmm. And uh, January the 14th, she apologized profusely. She took my coil out and she's like, okay, all of your water weight should, um, like it should settle down. Your yeah. hormones should balance out, give it like a week or so, you should be fine. Mm-hmm. No. This, Basically, I just carried on gaining more weight and more weight and more weight and I carried on having pain. And I went back and I was like, there's definitely something wrong. So she sent me for a scan and I had a ultrasound and they were like, oh yeah, so you've got a cyst on your right ovary and it was 19 by 21 by 20 centimeters, which didn't really mean much to me, yeah. but it was, if you know anything about measurements, it's pretty, it's pretty big. So like, the, the size of think of like a 30 centimeter ruler for context it's like nearly two two thirds of a 30 centimeter ruler all the way around oh my god yeah and then she was like we need to check it because it could be cancerous and i was like okay not really sure what i was supposed to do in the meantime but okay so i had some blood tests and they were like oh it's not cancerous they're like oh we'll schedule you to have surgery to remove the cyst in july so that would have been like july 2011 in july yeah at the point that i had this appointment for my scan and i got my results back it was february and they were like oh we'll schedule your scan (gasps) and they're like in the meantime you know just take some painkillers to manage your pain um and that was that and in the end i got to maybe the end of February, March. And I was like, I can't, I physically couldn't make it to lectures. I was wearing like, my mom um, had a hysterectomy and I was wearing clothes that she was wearing after her hysterectomy because her weight just like shot up. They were like size 16 to 18 because I couldn't fit into any of my clothes because this sister was so big. Um, I think everybody just thought I was pregnant. And so I kept going to A&E, like, I'm in pain, please. Somebody needs to do something. Um, and I ended up going back home because my mum was like, it's not, I don't really feel like it's safe for you to yeah, be yeah, at uni yeah. on your own. And uh, I went to A&E quite a few times mm-hmm. and nobody would treat me. Everyone was like, well, you're scheduled to have surgery in Liverpool. So I actually went to A&E in Birmingham once and uh, the consultant was like, you're not my problem and I don't want to see you. And the only reason she saw me is because the junior doctor who was triaging yeah. that evening 
was like, if I send you home, knowing that you have a sister of that size, because by this point it was like way bigger. He was like, if your sister ruptures or something happens to you and you die, he was like, I don't want it on my conscience that we didn't do everything that we could. And oh then she only agreed to see me, the consultant only agreed to see me if I allowed her to perform an internal examination, even though I had paperwork from Liverpool Women's Hospital, yeah. which clearly stated everything that was wrong with me. Um, so I let her do the exam examination thinking that if I did that, then she'd help me. Mm -hmm. She didn't, she just grilled me. She made me wait till like three o'clock in the morning before she did it. It was so uncomfortable. And then she sent me home and told me to take some paracetamol. She and just wanted to have a look basically. I feel like because she was doing, obviously she was doing some kind of like training with yeah. another, like a junior doctor. So the junior doctor was there. And I almost just felt like I was more of an experiment because yeah. she was like, having a poke around. And then she told the junior doctor to basically have a go. Oh my God. And I think like when you're really vulnerable and you're in a lot of pain and you're here thinking, okay, the even the, the imbalance in the power dynamic that yeah. she said to me, I'll, basically I'll only help you if you let me perform an internal examination, which was completely unnecessary because she didn't need to do that. Um, that was quite traumatizing. And then about, the next day, because she was not helpful, I yeah. went to see a walk-in GP um, and he was like, look, your sister's so big that your symptoms are saying it's starting to tore on your ovary. So it's like starting to twist and potentially disconnect or rupture. And he was like, if that happens, he was like, you're just gonna die of septicemia before an ambulance can get to you. So, okay, I need to wrap my head around all of this <laughs> because like, it's, it's so, extreme it almost doesn't sound real like do you know what i mean yeah where, where i'm i'm literally thinking how can you have seen that many professionals and everyone is very much like i don't want that problem mm -mm. knowing what you're going through like you're a human being yeah and you're like please help me and everyone's just like i don't want that issue yeah and so at this point you're i was 19 you're 19 yeah and um, I think to be honest, if it wasn't for my mom, my mom was such a big advocate. Like she was the person who was having to drive me to the hospital yeah, all the time. Yeah. Um, and I think because of my mom's, her experiences with her reproductive health, that was really useful during my like recovery just mm -hmm. because I had some guidance, but it was honestly like my family advocating for me because I was, completely at my wits end. Yeah. And I'd had to suspend my studies at uni. Like I'd done as much as I could do. And then physically I was like, I couldn't physically get into yeah. uni. I was, other than when I was at the hospital going to a &E, I was pretty much in bed most of the time. And uh, anyways, when this doctor said to me, you know, if your sister ruptures, you're just gonna die. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh, okay. Cause he was the first person that actually said to me, your condition is so serious that if you do not get help now, you could die from it. Like you're not gonna make it to your surgery date in July. And that was the first time that I was like, oh, okay, so it's not just excruciating pain. This is my life that yeah, we're talking about. Yeah. Because even though I knew I had this big cyst, I didn't really understand the danger yeah. and nobody had explained that to me. And um, I went back to the hospital I was under and they were like, yeah, we're not gonna move your surgery date up. And I was like, but this doctor literally told me that I could die. And they were like, okay. 
<laughs> just no response. So um, my dad was like, why don't you pay to go and see a private consultant? Yeah. Um, and my mom was like, yeah, it doesn't matter. She said, if I've got to remortgage the house yeah. to make sure that somebody sees you, then that's what we'll have to do because you can't put a price on your life. Yeah, literally, this is your life we're talking about. So we went to see a really lovely consultant, Miss Downey, yeah. in Birmingham at the BMI. And thank God for student finance because <laughs> that was the best 180 pounds I ever spent in my life. And um, I went to see her and literally she took a look at me like two minutes after I walked in the door and she was like, well, that's got to come out, hasn't it? And she didn't do any internal examinations. All she did was she asked me to lie in bed. She looked at my stomach. She felt my stomach. Yeah. And she was like, yeah, your sister's really, really big. She was like, come in next week, Wednesday, and I'll do your surgery. So I saw her on the Friday and I went in on the Wednesday for my operation. And um, yeah, she said to me, there's a possibility you could lose like your right ovary. Yeah. Um, but she was like, oh, it's really unlikely. She was like, you know, we're just, um, drain the fluid from the cyst yeah. and then remove the sac okay. and kind of go from there. But it was supposed to be a 20 minute surgery. And uh, when I came round, I think I'd been in there for like four hours or something. Oh my God. Um, I was also really fortunate because she was like, by the way, so the surgery is gonna be about 25 grand. And I was like, how much? And she, but luckily she also worked for the NHS. So okay. she did it in an NHS hospital. Okay. But if it wasn't for me paying to go and see her, yeah. I would not have got surgery like four days later yeah, in the yeah, NHS hospital, it wouldn't have happened. Um, I was like there in my Asda dress, like I don't have 25 grand to pay you. <laughs> <laughs> Who does? <laughs> oh my God, okay. But um, yeah, so I came around from my surgery and uh, pretty much all of my water weight had gone like overnight. But when I came around, she's like, oh yeah, we had to remove your right over in fallopian tube because the cyst was so big, it had wrapped the fallopian tube around itself and completely destroyed it. And um, she said there's a dermoid cyst that was grown inside the ovary. Yeah. So the dermoid cyst is made up of tissue and cells that are typically found in other parts of the body. Okay. So it's made up of a lot of fatty, fatty tissue, but she was like, oh yeah, your cyst, it had hair and teeth and eyes and wait what like, yeah yeah i don't understand so a dermatist is made up of like it's essentially made up of cells and tissue that you'd find literally in other places yeah so um they can have teeth they can have eyes there can be <laughs> hair found in it like actual teeth like yeah like actual teeth yeah it's like a, a little creepy. gremlin basically like, like, literally that's, that's what I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm picturing like in my head yeah this thing had Oh my, okay, okay. I remember reading about like a really rare case where someone's dermoid cyst had like, a, like what looked like a mini heart in it. This is terrifying. Yeah, it's a little bit freaky. So. Oh, okay. And then um, she was just like, oh, okay. So, you know, there's not really anything else wrong. Um, I was in hospital for five days and then I went home for the rest of my recovery and uh. She was like, yeah, just, you know, go and live your best life. She was like, oh, you know, you should still be able to have kids and stuff because you've still got one ovary. Um, but then I came out of hospital and I had like a bit of an identity crisis. Yes. Because uh, I was like, I've just been through this life-changing operation. And I think I, when I was ill before, 
and I was in pain. I was looking forward to going into hospital because I was like, one, the problem's going to be sorted out. Yeah. But I kept making jokes like, oh, it's going to be great. Everybody's going to buy me flowers and bring me grapes. I'm going to feel like Julius Caesar. Just <laughs> <laughs> completely cared for and adored yeah. and showered with, oh my God, get well. Get Basically. well gifts. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, I had absolutely, I was not prepared at all for, like, physically, I couldn't eat for days. Like, I was literally living on Capri Suns and watermelon because it was the only thing that I could keep down. And um, I wasn't prepared for, like, the mental and emotional journey that I was going to go on afterwards. I completely felt like I'd lost my identity. I was, like, questioning womanhood, everything that I thought that I'd ever known even though she'd said that I could still, you know, be able to conceive, I was that like internal stress, but what if she's wrong? Yeah, what, what if I can't? Wrong, yeah. And then I went through the stage where I was just like becoming really obsessive about every finite detail yeah. of trying to conceive or have a baby. And my mom was like, I think you need to see a therapist. And you keep looking for all of this support and information. She was like, it's obviously not there. Mm. Why don't you just make your own? support service and that was basically how the women started i started blogging about what i'd been through and like how my recovery was going and then my blog gained traction and then kind of just went from there went from there and it's just been very up and down over the last few years because i've been in and out of hospital a lot yeah i was diagnosed with stage two endometriosis in 2014 okay after which my consultant at the time was like, so there's not really anything I can do for you because I was told that I can't take hormonal contraceptives because of the dermoid cyst like, increasing my risk of cancers mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, so he was like, all I can say is go live a nice life and when you're ready, come back and we'll give you a hysterectomy. Are you mad? And I was like, okay, I'm 21, 22 at the time. I was like, I'm not really thinking about hysterectomy, but thanks for that. And then a year later, I went to see a fertility specialist oh, and... Um, he was like, yeah, so you've also got uterine fibroids, uterine polyps, suspected adenomyosis. He was like, you should probably do egg freezing or embryo freezing to increase your chances of conception because if you don't have kids by the time you turn 27, you're probably never going to have any. And I was like, oh, okay. How much does that cost? He was like, oh, it's about 40 grand. I was like, <clears throat> okay. <laughs> well, me and my defunct eggs are just going to have to hope for the best because I don't have 40 grand to give you. Oh, my, like... There's there's so much in what you've said that I I really want to unpack because it's insane. But like, what I've found like I've I've been very fortunate to have not had anything as ex as extreme as that. Like I've had really bad period pains, mm. um, which they've like investigated and I've seen specialists and gynecologists and I've had ultrasounds and blah blah. blah. I've I've had all of that. But even when I was going through that the thing that I struggled with the most was just that power Mm. because I come into like a room knowing fuck all. Like I don't know a thing. I don't know what you're talking about. Half of the jargon that you're, like for me, I'm sorry, purposely using to almost like bamboozle me. Mm. And then I'm just like, okay, cool. And then like I leave there thinking, I don't know what, what this means. What does this mean for me? What do I do? It's... It's so hard as a woman to to be like, something doesn't feel right. I don't know what it is, but yeah. I'm trusting you as a professional to find yeah. out what it is and to tell me what all of my options are and what it means. And then when you've got someone like you that goes through all of that, I don't, I don't feel like I would trust another 
NHS practitioner again, <laughs> because I'd be like, how could all of you have allowed me to have, have gone through all of that? And I've been so like, no urgency about it. Yeah. Considering the size of it and everything that you were explaining to them, I, I, I just, I can't, I honestly cannot understand. I'm in shock. Well, like at the time that I had my first operation, um, the cyst was so big, they drained just under five liters of fluid from the cyst. So if you think like them five liter bottles, bottles of water, of yeah, that's what I was carrying around. That was just the cyst. That's not including excess water weight that I had on top of that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think because I just carried on having problems, that experience taught me that if I'm not advocating for myself, yeah. who is gonna be there to advocate for me? Like, yes, like my mom was great. My family were good. Like my nan, um, and I wasn't helpful in a practical way, but you know, like nans are just very yeah. encouraging. Yeah. She was always there when I was crying, yeah. you know, she'd go to the shop and buy me super malt and a <laughs> chocolate bar. <laughs> like a good nan, you know? <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think I was fortunate in that I had support. Yeah. And I was, think I was fortunate as well because my mom worked in sexual health for a really long time. Okay. Um, she set up one of the very first like mother and baby projects for okay. women who have HIV, yeah. who are refugees, um, and had a lot of experience in kind of like women's health and reproductive well-being and sexual health. So I had somebody whose opinion I could trust mm -hmm. and me and my mom have the closest relationship. I call her like five times a day. <laughs> <laughs> Basically still kick her. But um, I think cause I carried on having symptoms of problems. Yeah. I knew from my first experience, it's not enough to just let it slide. Yeah. I have to do something about it. Yeah. And even up until, like I started having problems with my continence in 2016. Yeah. And I was wetting myself just like, I could not hold my bladder at all. Even my friends would be like, every time they'd ask me out somewhere, but like, is there a toilet? Is there a toilet nearby? Are we sitting somewhere where there's a toilet close yeah. by? Because any given moment I needed to go to the bathroom, I just couldn't hold my bladder for like more than 20, 30 and seconds. this was after the surgery? This was after I had my surgery to remove my ovary. Yeah. It was after I had my surgery where I was diagnosed with endometriosis. Um, and after I'd been to see the fertility specialist, it was like about six to eight months after I after saw the fertility that, specialist yeah. in 2015, I started having issues with my continence. And it turned out, so I saw an endometriosis specialist in 2017 mm -hmm. because it just got to the point where it was completely too disruptive to my life. Yeah. And um, I was like, how do I go to the toilet before I leave work? And I only worked 20 minutes door to door. Uh, to my house, I was like, I get off the tram because I was living in yeah. New Addington at the time. Yeah. I was like, I get off the tram and I can't even make it down the hill to my front door. And my house from the tram was like a six minute walk. And I was like, I can't even make it home. I can't go half an hour without going to the toilet. It's ridiculous. Oh and um, I saw a specialist yeah. and he was like, it's probably your endometriosis spreading to your bladder and your bowels and that's why it's causing problems with your continence. And then I had two operations, like about six to eight weeks apart in 2017 mm -hmm. to remove my endometriosis. And that has helped with my continence, but sometimes it's still a bit touch and go. Yeah. 
but yeah I think it's just the process of like learning to advocate because I knew if I didn't advocate for myself yeah no one else was going to do it for me yeah and and then encouraging other people who had similar experiences to do the same because navigating the system can be a minefield yeah particularly when you're first trying to get a diagnosis Mm. I almost feel like that's the biggest hurdle is getting the diagnosis in the first place like I um so at the mid so yeah so like around June of last year um I had this oh I've never spoken about this on the podcast um yeah like I had this this pain in my which honestly felt like it was like in my ovary and I remember like I was at an event and I was fine and I was like yeah okay cool and then out of of nowhere probably the worst pain that I've ever had in my life and I just like doubled over I couldn't Mm. move I couldn't walk I couldn't even I couldn't explain what it was but I was like I'm in so much pain um and prior to that I had noticed that there was blood in my urine so I'd been to the to the doctor before and to be fair I have a really really good doctor so like like when I told him I was like look this is what I've seen this is how I felt blah blah he was just like I'm not even gonna play around like you're gonna see like a specialist and blah yeah. blah so I was really really fortunate there um and it's like for about a month and a half I was in the hospital every single week for some sort of something yeah um some sort of appointment some sort of scan and just um ultrasounds and th- and it's it's like it's very draining when you're going through all of these things and you don't know why because yeah. it's it's just a case of thinking, all right, am I gonna be told today, oh, okay, we found out it's it's this or do I then have to go and then wait like another week and then go back again? I'm just like, have you found out? Um, and it's like, I was going week after week after week and they were just thinking, all right, well, we're, we're gonna check for this. It's not this, so we're gonna check for this. And it just progressed and progressed and, and, and progressed. Um, and then I remember being, like I got a call and they wanted me to come in for an internal scan of my bladder. So they put, this is really, really graphic. They put um, a camera yeah, up into my bladder. And it's like, I felt so vulnerable because it was just me, a nurse and this doctor. And then they had asked if it was okay if a junior doctor could come in and observe. And I said, mm. no. Cause I was just like, I'm I'm too distraught to yeah. be somebody's guinea pig. guinea pig. Yeah, like I I completely understand that that's how people have to learn. But I, but like in my mind, I was just like, learn on somebody else. Like I, I can't. <laughs> I, I I physically can't. And like I remember being like, on on this bed, and it's like it's it's probably the most intrusive thing that I've had done as well. So I've got on a gown, nothing underneath, and he's just like, okay, bring your heels to your bum and let your legs yeah. flop over. And I was just like, okay. <laughs> okay. And I'm there and he's put this camera inside me and I just burst into tears. Mm. And it's like, like it wasn't painful. It, it was just... Oh, like, like I don't even know like that how to even I think sometimes the process is just emotional and yeah. it's really it's emotionally taxing when you don't know what's wrong and you're having to have loads of different tests for things to find out yeah 
but nobody's really explaining like some of the stuff that they're doing they're not even explaining what doing this particular thing is supposed to achieve Mm -hmm. or what it's going to tell them i pet peeve is like when i have an ultrasound but there's it's not done by a doctor um so the person who does it, the radiographer's like, yeah, so your doctor's going to contact you with the results. And I'm like, but you could literally just tell me right yeah. now. Oh my God. Results. Okay. Yeah. Because I'm going to sit here and panic. I'm going to have anxiety for the next like two weeks or three weeks until I see my doctor. i look at the screen thinking, oh, can I see anything? I don't even know what any of this even exactly. means. Um, but it is, as you said, being able to advocate for yourself. And mm. it is so hard because you almost feel like you don't have a place to, I don't know, like argue back or say, no, I'm not happy with that. Yeah. I, like I want this. Um, <sighs> but it's so important to, it's so, so important to yeah. ask for the things that you want. And like, I always say to people, um, you don't have to take, obviously you don't have to take the first opinion that you're given mm. as gospel because actually getting a second opinion doesn't hurt. And you don't have to, like when you're referred for treatment or for investigation at a particular hospital, you don't have to go with that hospital or that specialist if you would prefer to see someone else. Mm -hmm. Like under the NHS constitution, you can actually request to be seen by another um, doctor or a specialist of your choice. it depends. Certain CCGs, like they won't take patients from certain places, as I aptly discovered this week, because um, I'm trying to get a referral back to see an endometriosis specialist, yeah. and um, I wanted to go to St Thomas's, and they were like, "No, you cannot come here because they don't take people who li- who um, live in Croydon or come under the borough of Croydon." Okay. So I had to get a referral to basically nowhere that I wanted would take me. <laughs> it was like, can I go to King's? They were like, no. no. Um, so, and I can't go back to my last consultant who's in Birmingham because mm-hmm. his waiting list is full. Yeah. Um, so in the end I was like, can I go to Bart's? So I'm going to Bart's, but they're like, oh yeah, the earliest appointment is the 6th of March. I was like, okay, I'll, I'll just take it. Cause not, not, <laughs> there's not much I can say. I was like, I've only been waiting four months, but it's fine. Another three won't hurt. <laughs> and like, so, all of this came about from literally the coil. Yeah. Like, do you feel like you were um, given enough information about your, your options for contraception? Mm. I think I was in a privileged position because of the nature of the work that my mom did yeah, that okay, I knew a lot true. before mm-hmm. I went to the doctor. However, um, In terms of how contraceptives are given out and kind of making sure that people have fully informed consent, I don't really think enough is done to make sure that people have informed consent about what they're taking before they consent to taking it and what some of the long-term implications of that might be. Um, I also don't think, I think it's a fine balance because I also don't think that like you should scaremonger people into not trying something Mm -hmm. it's whatever works for you I've got friends who have had the coil fitted um and they have it fitted that's like their best form of contraception for them and that works but then also on the opposite end of the spectrum there's a lot of people that it doesn't work for it's kind of a matter of trial and error but um I guess I I wasn't really expecting my trial and error yeah to to be like that yeah for real to have such life-changing kind of impact but it's kind of I always feel like having the coil fitted is a bit of a silver lining on my life yeah. because 
I didn't have anything I was passionate about up until then. Yeah. I loved doing a lot of things. I initially went to uni. I wanted to be a pilot. I wanted to go to flying school when oh, I graduated. Wow. And um, the only reason that I didn't pursue that career was because I was like, it's gonna be quite short lived. Yeah. And with all of the problems that I was having with my reproductive well-being. I never wanted to have children yeah. until I was in a position where I was faced with it not being an option yeah. for me. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, oh, actually, maybe I do want to have a family. Um, and I was like, if I pursue being a pilot on top of all of my health problems and like the fact that I was in and out of hospital quite a lot, mm. I was like, it's going to be a short-lived career and it's going to limit my opportunity to have yeah, a family. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I decided not to pursue it, but it gave me something else that I was passionate about. Yeah. And it's meant that I've like met some really incredible yeah. like women along the way. So like, how do you, um, or how does the womb room, should I say, support like other women? Ooh, <sighs> I've tried so many different things yeah. over the years. Um, so like I said, like I started off just blogging mm-hmm. and then I moved into delivering reproductive health education to girls in schools. Okay, cool. And when I started doing it in 2012, it was so difficult to get anybody to take me seriously. Um, And what I wanted to do, my idea was if I can teach young women how to self-advocate, I can teach them the signs and symptoms of a potential reproductive health problem, then it will reduce the length of time it takes for diagnosis for conditions like endo Mm -hmm. um, and fibroids Mm -hmm. because they'll understand their body better. Mm -hmm. Because when you actually start asking people to explain to you, people will be like, yeah, I know how a period works. Okay, explain how a period actually works. You realize that people actually don't really know that much about their body. They don't really understand it that well. And if you don't understand it, then you can't be that fully in tune Mm -hmm. with it. And even basic things like um, going to the doctors, like teaching women, when you go to the doctors, how to effectively describe the pain that you're having, because that can have an impact on how your doctor then responds to you in a Mm -hmm. conversation. So just like understanding the language to use, understanding how to communicate effectively, like what you're experiencing and what your body's going through Mm. so that your doctor can, you can get the most out of your doctor, but also if your doctor's not doing anything, you can advocate for yourself more effectively. Um, That's definitely something that I I wish I knew younger. Yeah. Um, Because a lot of the time I would go to the doctors and I didn't quite know how to like, explain what it was or I didn't know what the language was. Yeah. So I kind of got to a point where I would go and I would tell myself, Georgette, just dramatize everything so they take you seriously. I sometimes it's gonna sound so bad, but sometimes you actually have to. Yeah, like and I think that's appalling. Awful. You shouldn't have yeah. to you shouldn't have to play up your symptoms in yeah. order to be taken seriously. Like but sometimes yeah, because what I was finding was if I went and I was like, oh, well, it's not that bad, but it's kind of like this, then the wait was just a lot longer mm. as opposed to like, if I was just like, I can't function, I can't do daily things like get up and go to work, yeah. or I can't go to school, or I can't do that, blah, blah, blah. Then there was a bit of, of urgency. Yeah. Um, yeah. Somebody Sorry. said to me this week, I was talking to <laughs> someone, um, and they were like, oh yeah, my doctor said that basically I've got a really high pain threshold. And I was like, well, how would your doctor know that? Because pain is subjective. What is a five for me could be a 10 for you. Yeah. So your doctor saying that you have a really high pain threshold What's that even mean? is slightly concerning because there's no way of like really mm. measuring that. 
But also that tends to be something that a lot of black women that I speak to are told quite frequently. And our reproductive well-being outcomes are significantly worse than other groups. So I feel like it's particularly important. If you consider like nearly 80% of black women will have fibroids at some point in their life, they'll have a diagnosis of fibroids. That's a phenomenal amount of women. But then these are conversations that we're not having. Having, We're not having them as a community. We're not like having them in our family or our friendship groups that much. We don't understand how to manage our conditions effectively. Mm -hmm. So I was like, how do we go about changing that? Mm -hmm. So we do events um, sometimes. We go into businesses and we work with them to deliver training so that they as a company can understand how hidden wellbeing issues like endo or fibroids or PCOS, or it could be like fibromyalgia or even lupus impact people in their workplace and how they can change their company culture to better accommodate people's wellbeing. Look, I definitely think that's that's needed. Even like just having a bad period. Oh my days. Like I've had times where I'm just like, I can't deal with work, but how do I tell work that this is why I can't deal? Yeah. Like it's it's so hard being able to like just communicate your needs. Just communicate to your boss, and there's that fear that, that you're not going to be taken seriously, yeah. or that that's not a valid reason. Yeah. Like it's easier to say I've got a migraine than mm-hmm. it is to say my period is really painful. Mm-hmm. Like I recently had a period. I was one of those people, by the way. Before I started having reproductive health problems, I did not empathise with women who had period pain <laughs> because I've it was completely them. alien to me. <laughs> I was like, period pain. What's, what's that? that? <laughs> my periods were like three, four days, really? and they were not painful at all. Oh. I was like swimming through that. <laughs> but um, when I started having reproductive health problems, then I was like, oh, yeah. this is what you guys are complaining about. Um, but like recently at Christmas, I came with my period. My oh. period lasted 14 days. And I was like, okay. And that's like in the space of the last three months, my periods have gone from being five days to now being like 14 days. Oh. And I was just like, yeah, okay, this is, I f- this feels like death, guys. It's like a hot ball of like, fire. It would just, I mean, my periods tend to drain me anyway. And even like before I'm, I'm even at the point of actually bleeding, like everything beforehand when mm. my mood swings are just all over the place and then I want to eat everything. And then I'm just emotional as hell over like a bird could fly past and I'm just like, oh my God. <laughs> Was flying. It's just amazing. Yeah, no. And I'm just, I'm, I'm just, I, I tend to feel like I'm losing my mind. I'm like, Josette, you're actually going mad. Mm. And then PMS. I check the calendar, I'm like, I'm oh, okay. And then I start breathing, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm fine. But it's, it's such an ordeal. Mm. And that is for me, that has a period max five days. So to, that, to then have all of that and then have a 14 day period I'm stressed because my period's due next week, Thursday. And I'm like, I feel like I haven't had a break. Also, <laughs> the cost of products. is so expensive. Oh it's ex- more expensive because I switched to using, um, I changed my diet. I stopped eating meat. I stopped yeah. eating dairy. Although I'm a sucker for cheese, but I'm actually lactose intolerant. So I really need to stop that. Same. I need to take my life more seriously. Um, I cut down on like sugar yeah. as well. I would typically only drink certain types of alcohol because the sugar content is low, like yeah. gin, gin. Mm-hmm. tequila. Oh, Those two well. alcohols, yeah. I don't really get flare ups mm-hmm. with my endometriosis if I have them. But like if I have rum, oh my days, it's all over for yeah. me. Like five days I'll be in bed in, in agony. Yeah. But um, 
yeah, I cut out those things. And then I started making sure that I was getting enough like magnesium and iron mm-hmm. and B12 and stuff. And that had a massive impact. My fo- my fibroids, the next time I went for a scan, they would like, I don't understand your first scan because you your fibroids are basically invisible. Like, I can barely see them. Wow. And the only thing that I changed in my life was my, was the nutrition yeah. and the way I was approaching it. Um, but also just like little things like not getting enough sleep. Yeah doing too much exercise and not doing enough exercise. Yeah, it's like yeah, yeah. a constant process of trying to find balance and that's exhausting. Mm-hmm. So um, you, you've you touched on a few other conditions, um, which I know you guys cover as well, but I was thinking like it would be, be good to talk about those just in case there's anyone that, like I don't know, either doesn't know what it is or is yeah. starting to, to find out that, that it's something that they're, um, experiencing or just just like I guess what women should look out for because you just don't know if you could be impacted mm-hmm. by it and, and 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 when so if we start with endometriosis yeah yeah you want me to give you like a couple signs and symptoms and a breakdown of what yeah it is? please okay so um endometriosis is probably one of the most common reproductive diseases it yeah. affects roughly 176 million women worldwide um as conditions go it's almost as common as diabetes no in the way. number of people that it affects but obviously only i can't say only but predominantly affects women, women there are yeah. very rare cases where men have endometriosis too but very rare i didn't even know that very very rare get it. um Essentially, when you have your period every month, the lining of the womb sheds. And with endometriosis, when you're having your period every month and the lining of the womb is shedding, cells similar to those found in the lining of the womb, actually, they don't shed, they stick to your other, they stick to you like your womb, um, your ovaries, Mm -hmm. they can spread to other organs. So like I said, I've got endometriosis on my bladder and on my bowels. there's cases where women have got like their endometriosis has spread to their lungs or their heart wow. or their kidneys or their liver. Um, that's not as common, yeah. but it's spread into your reproductive system, very common. Every time you have a period that would just get worse. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the inflammation from endometriosis, when it flares up and it becomes inflamed, then encourages adhesions or scar tissue to grow. Yeah, um, And that, can in many cases it can it can make you infertile or there's rather I should say there's a lot of women who access fertility <coughs> services who also have endometriosis yeah but it doesn't mean that if you have endometriosis you can't get pregnant because actually if you do get pregnant with endometriosis during the time that you're pregnant the balance the change in the balance of your hormones means that your endometriosis symptoms tend to dissipate and then they come back generally once you have your first period yeah. after pregnancy. But in terms of things to look out for, um, it could be heavy uh, or very painful periods. Yeah. A lot of pelvic pain, um, swelling, or you can get like a lot of abdominal bloating yeah. quite frequently. But it's also important to note some women can have endometriosis and have no symptoms at all. And once yeah. you, you could have other symptoms in your body. So I get a lot of pain in my hips and my knees as a result of my endometriosis as well. And um, I also started having anxiety once mm-hmm. I had my um, endometriosis diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And those can be other symptoms that can be attributed to other things. Yeah. Um, 
like I've 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 just brought up um, the main symptoms of endometriosis according to, uh, to the NHS, mm. and like you said, so you can get pain in the lower stomach or the back, um, which is usually worse during your period. Yeah. Um, period pain that stops you from being able to do normal activities, pain during or after sex as well. Very common. Um, pain when using the toilet. Yeah. During your period. If you have difficulty sometimes, like when you're on your period, if you have difficulty opening your bowels, yeah, like really severe because it's really painful, yeah. that can usually be a sign of endometriosis. Um, yeah, so feeling sick, constipation, diarrhea, blood in your pee during your period. Mm. Which if you think Which about way? a lot of those symptoms, <laughs> yeah. could just be for a lot of people who are having periods, they'll just think, oh, those are average symptoms yeah, of a period. If I'm honest, again, very, very graphic, when I'm on my period, I have all of that. Well, we're not like all, but I feel sick. Sometimes I can have really bad diarrhea. Mm. Um, there's there's blood anyway. So I don't even know yeah, if I would be able it. to tell if this is blood from my period or blood in yeah. my pee. Um, yeah, and, and then also you can have very heavy periods. Um, a lot of those symptoms though, they're also symptoms of having fibroids. Yeah. So, um, if you have fibroids, um, which is like non-cancerous tissue growth mm -hmm. that affects the reproductive system, very, very common in black women. Um, next most common in Asian women, least common in white women. Yeah. Uh, a lot of those symptoms can be symptoms of fibroids as well. So you can have the pain really heavy, long or irregular period. So yeah. you might not have a period for three or four months. Yeah. Um, and then you might get really heavy periods. You might have bleeding for really long periods of time. So hmm. your period could be 14 days. Some women are like, I've met women who are like, yeah, I've been bleeding for 30 days straight. Oh my God. Yeah. I met this um, one woman. She was like, yeah, I've been on my period for three months now. And I'm just like, I think I would have just like given up and resigned myself to Netflix in bed if my period was <laughs> three, three months, months straight. straight. Like. Oh, and, how do, and just how do you just yeah, your basic day to day yeah, quality of life is like, affected? How do you manage that? How do you cope with that every day? And and even if it's not like heavy periods, but just knowing that you're bleeding, yeah. And just the other things that it stops you or it creates a barrier to you being able to do, yeah. Like if you're not comfortable with the idea of having sex on your period, yeah until you stop bleeding, you're just Whenever not having is, sex. <laughs> it could be any time. And that's thing. sometimes, I've had times where I have had sex and then that's triggered the bleeding. Okay. So then I've had bleeding for a few days yeah. afterwards. Um, and also like, that's upsetting. Yeah. It's just upsetting. Cause sometimes you're just like, why is this why? my life? Yeah. <laughs> why? Um, there's also polycystic, polycystic ovarian yeah. syndrome. Yeah, so there's different, okay, so I think it's clear to make, to point out, polycystic ovarian syndrome is not the same as polycystic ovaries, ovaries. Yeah. because you can have polycystic ovaries, but not have the syndrome. Okay. Um, If you've got the syndrome, you've also got polycystic ovaries though. Okay. Um, But if you have the syndrome, symptoms can be um, rapid weight gain. For some people it's the opposite. It can actually be like rapid weight loss, oh but um, weight gain tends to be the most common. Yep. You can get 
hirsutism, I think it's called, or basically like you start growing facial hair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or hair in um, places that typically you would see men would yeah. have hair. Um, and is that because... You can have really painful periods as yeah. well. And they don't quite, it's not quite clear why PCOS causes painful periods because it's not... Um, it's not the same as fibroids or endometriosis. Like there's no growth. There's nothing growing on your, oh. like, you get polycystic cysts to be yes, fair. They okay, grow okay. on your, um, over you and you can get, your ovaries can be polycystic. Yeah. But they're not quite clear why um, some of the symptoms of PCOS, like really painful periods, mm. they're not quite clear why the pain can be so excruciating, why it's so bad. Like there's, from the research that I looked at, um, just before Christmas, like they were saying that there's not really a clear link to the pain. They don't really understand why women are getting it. But but if you have any one of those symptoms, you should, I always suggest people plot them in a diary. So yeah. you can, or if you've got a period tracker and you can write notes in it, mm -hmm. put them in a period tracker. So you can um, have notes for yourself and you can spot patterns, mm -hmm. but also 100% get them checked out and don't stop going to your doctor and bothering them until they do something about it. Mm. Best case scenario, you go there, you say, look, I've got all of these symptoms and they're also symptoms of but, one of yeah, these conditions. Yeah, of I would like to be tested for these conditions. You get early diagnosis, at least you know what your treatment options yeah. are in at an earlier date. Like the average length of time for diagnosis of endo is like seven years. Jesus Christ. By which point it could be too late in yeah. terms of discussing or exploring your options to have a family if that's something you want to do or even just more than having a family it's like just the impact it has on your quality of life yeah like everybody i don't i don't want to be tired every day <laughs> i don't want to be in pain every day i have to plan my days so that i know by two o'clock in the afternoon i have to get up at like 5 30 in the morning or four o'clock because i know by two o'clock in the afternoon my inflammation is going to sit in yeah. i'm going to be in pain and i'm basically useless until about after 6 30 in the evening yeah can I ask, um, after you had your surgery and you're in recovery, um, how did it impact your sex life? Or, or like, when did you even start thinking, I wanna have sex again now? Or <laughs> even if it comes to like dating and, and, and thinking, should I tell this person yeah. now? Okay. This is great. We're getting on fantastic. However, you should probably know. Like, I would just have so much anxiety thinking, how is a guy gonna look at me? Like, are they almost gonna look like, okay, she's a bit, I don't wanna say defective, cause that's so harsh. No, I, I'm gonna say it because I've had men say it to me. Wow. I've had men tell me that, what would be the point of being in a relationship with me if I can't, give them children wow. as if that's the only thing that I was put on this earth to do please <laughs> um I think because of the nature of my work and the fact that I'm literally always talking about yeah what I'm experiencing um I always tell people straight off the bat and yeah. I think it's because if you go on dates people ask you what do you do so then it comes up in okay, a conversation so, yeah, that yeah. way um but I did a tv program I did two tv programs last year mm -hmm. and I actually was like in an ice cream shop and this guy stopped me and he was like oh I saw you on this documentary and I was like oh okay you sure it was me and he was like yeah he was like and then he started talking to me about it and he was telling me like 
what his wife had been through. And I thought that was quite oh, nice. Oh, wow. Okay. But, um, sorry, to go back to your question. Yeah. In terms of sex, I think, like, sex is, like, literally one of my favourite things. So, I was, like... I probably should have waited to heal a bit more before I started oh, having no sex way. again. <laughs> I did She's not wait like, long enough. Well, it seems fine. Exactly. Um, <laughs> I think, yeah, it was kind of just a matter of, I, I think I enjoy sex and sex is such an important part of my life for so yeah. many different reasons that I was quite keen to start having sex again. Because mm-hmm. that thing, like, you're lying there recovering, but you're still getting horny. Yes, right? like, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't switch off. Away. Yeah, for real. <laughs> Listen. But then I do go through periods where I think I'm just, like, so exhausted and I'm so tired. Yeah. Where And I've only noticed it more recently um, where I'm just, like, mm, I feel like I've got a little bit of a loss of libido sometimes. Okay. And I think it's probably because if you're in pain all the time, the pain becomes the focal point of your life. And so it's really easy to lose pleasure in your life because sex, I've had like times where sex has been really uncomfortable, really painful, or I've been having sex and I've started bleeding. And that I always, I find it less embarrassing now, but there's a part of me that shrivels up on the inside every time it happens because I feel like I've then got to apologize and then I get upset with myself because I'm like why am I apologizing for a basic bodily function I can't help what my body is doing but I think if you've got a good partner who understands then it's less of an issue Mm -hmm. but it's about having somebody who the thing that I find difficult with dating is like someone who's prepared to go on that journey with you because it's not just, oh, you've got a reproductive health problem. It's someone else understanding I have a chronic illness and the ways that that impacts my life means that you being with me means that that's going to impact your life as well. But also finding that balance of like me not feeling unworthy of being loved by somebody because I have this chronic illness and because it could mean that I can't have children Mm. and trying not to make that the focal point of how mm-hmm. I pursue a relationship. And it's mad cause like, whether we want to accept it or not, as women, we are kind of like, we're told from such a young age that almost like our purpose is to raise a family. Yeah. It's to have kids and to bring up children and to be a good wife and all of this other stuff, which if that's what you're into, then, Live your best life. That's perfectly fine. But you'd have no idea what you could go through that could change that for you. Mm -hmm. And that's when like you do start thinking, what does it mean to be a woman Mm. if I have one ovary? Yeah. Or if something happens and I don't have ovaries or you can have them both and then find out that you still can't have kids. Like, what does that mean for you as a woman? What does that mean? how you choose to um, navigate with men or with women or in the workplace or or just who then are you as yeah. a person? I think you really have to learn to like redefine your entire identity yeah. outside of everything that you feel that you've ever been socialized to believe. Yeah. And I read a really great book. So I did my dissertation on the psychosocial impacts that reproductive health problems have on young women's lives and how they construct their identity as a result. And one of the things that came up like time and time again when I was interviewing people was this idea that like, 
womanhood and femininity was is very performative in yeah. nature mm-hmm. and there was a lot of i the people who are interviews feeling the need to overperform femininity yeah. in order to attract men mm-hmm. or sustain relationships because there was a part of them that felt that they weren't really a woman or that the, there was something that they'd lost in their identity as a yeah. woman after they'd had a diagnosis and like for me it was really important i think in a in a in a weird way i think because i've centered so much of my life around yeah. supporting other women to understand their reproductive well-being that has been very cathartic and it has allowed me to find something that has greater meaning and purpose to me outside of having a family and that has been really important mm-hmm. i think it's also meant that I've taken time to really understand like what brings me joy. Like what are the things that are stopping me from doing things that bring me greater happiness and then working to remove those things from Uh, my life and working to pursue my own interests and things that like make me happy on a day-to-day basis. Mm -hmm. Because I'm always quite conscious. I'm like, if I can't, if I cannot, birth a child then giving birth to my ideas is the next best thing Mm -hmm. for me um and making sure that the impact of that work touches other people's lives and helps them to understand how they can improve their own well-being and their own life and I feel like that has I've put so much of my energy and my time into Into that that, yeah because if I didn't honestly I think I'd just sit here I'd be very very depressed like when I started having counseling um it was because I just got to the point where I was so obsessed with having a baby. Mm. I had this timeline on my wall at uni and I basically mapped out when I would need to get pregnant within the university um, year in order to be able to basically go through most of the year, get all of my essays, my coursework, my exams done. Then I'd be able to have the baby. Basically I worked out like have the baby (laughs) by the time it's coming up to summer exams. So that by the time I went back to uni in September the following year, the baby would be old enough to go into nursery at uni and it could go into nursery from eight o'clock in the morning till six o'clock in the evening so I could study I could maybe even still have a part-time job and that was when my mom was just like this is not normal Mm -hmm. like you need to speak to someone Mm -hmm. about it and I understand that I think now I'm getting to that age um where how old are you now sorry 28 okay so I'm getting to that point where I don't have kids but a lot of people around me are starting to have families yeah. or a lot of people have been in long-term relationships and I'm here like, okay, I have no man. I have no kids. I have a lot of cats. Um, <laughs> Same, I- <laughs> minus the cats. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, listen, if I collect any more, I'll be opening a sanctuary. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm also conscious. Like if I say, oh yeah, so I really love cats. And they're like, oh, okay, do you have a cat? And I'm like, I have a few. <laughs> How many is a problem? But then like, even that, like, I remember, I think the first time I ever heard of the term, like, crazy cat lady, mm. when I was like, maybe like a teen, and I was just like, oh, what's that? It's like, oh, you know, like, then women that don't have kids, don't have a man to suddenly just get cats. So I was just like, yeah. okay, cool. But like, even things like that, like that, that shouldn't even be a thing. No, I think it's also an acknowledgement. I was 
just like, you know, you sit in there daydreaming. And then the other day I was sitting there daydreaming and I started having this little like existential crisis. And I was like, the reason that I collect so many cats and I love animals so much is because I'm filling this like space in my life where I feel like there should be a child, child but there might not yeah. be. So I'm filling my lack of love in that respect mm. by putting it all into, oh my days, let me rescue these helpless animals. <laughs> is that healthy like is there a point where actually that's not too healthy and I need to address that too but I think it's just like yeah it's finding balance but relationships can be difficult to navigate because I think some people are just like yeah okay this is not for me from the beginning and it's completely up to you when you tell somebody um I'm always very transparent because I'm like I think you need to understand that this is not going to be like a walk in the park necessarily um it's and not going to be difficult. Like I'm not, I'm not doubled. I'm doubled over in bed for yeah. a fair amount, but I'm still quite productive in my life. I'm still very active, but it's just the understanding that I need a certain level of empathy from you. I need a certain level of proactivity from you being engaged in wanting to understand mm-hmm. my condition and knowing how to, you know wanting to know how to support me best. Mm-hmm. And you've also got to accept my cats. So there's that too. Um, how do most men deal with it? Um, really dismissive. Really? Yeah. One of the things that I found is, I think I've, I've dated one person, I would say, who was, he was just so lovely. But he was also a great arsehole, so. Swings around about. Yeah, yeah, you know, you know. But, um... He was just like really caring, really understanding. Sometimes I'd be like having a flare up and he'd like send flowers to my house or he'd send food to my house because he knew that I was in bed and I couldn't like get out of bed um, to cook. So he'd be like, well, you should make sure that you're eating. And then like my doorbell would go and it would be takeaway. And I'm like, that's so sweet. Like it's the little things. But generally, do you know how many men I've had say to me, oh, you just need to man up. You just need to power through power through you just need to work through it and i'm like okay you who has small flu and can't get out the bed <laughs> okay sure sure like, sure okay i i really 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 so you can get them like um electro or electrolysis pads things that mm. can um get men to feel what it feels like to have a period. Mm. Like, I don't know if I'm... I feel like it should be a compulsory part of manhood. I really, <laughs> honestly, I... One day, like, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to fucking film it. I, I want... I wish men could understand what it feels like. Mm. So we can kind of break down this whole, oh my God, she's been dramatic. Oh, God, her period. Like, it's, it's such a serious thing that women have to go through. Yeah. So... For you to have, have been through what you have and to, to still be going through it now and have guys be like, oh my God, just man up, just just deal with it, power, power through it. Oh, the fuck should I, Listen, how? my very first boyfriend that I had, when I came out of hospital and the, he didn't come and see me when I was in hospital. I've never had a man come visit me when I was in hospital. No man that I've dated has ever come to the hospital when I've been in hospital. But then like, do you think that, that that's, a fear thing of of thinking I don't want to physically see her in, in that much But I feel pain. like that's a cop out because I feel like when 
some men have said that to me. Yeah. I've had a man say that to me before. And I was like, but what you're doing is positioning your feeling of uncomfortability true. over my actual lived true. experience. That's very true. And I feel like that's a lazy approach to being a partner. Because yeah. you want to know that someone's going to be in it with you 100%. Yeah, yeah, Particularly, you. like, some of the men that I speak to, I'm like, yeah, they're talking about they want to get married. I'm like, do you understand the in sickness part? It's not just in health all the time, you know. <laughs> in sickness. The sickness is and the thing very is, it prevalent. Wo- it works both ways. Yeah. Because, I, because I know what it feels like to be unwell. I think it makes me more empathetic when other people are oh, unwell. Oh, yeah. It makes me more caring and considerate because I understand what that feels like and it's horrible. But I think, I don't know, navigating, yeah, what I was saying is, yeah, my first boyfriend, when I went to see him, yeah. after I came out of hospital, he looked at my scar and he was like, oh, it makes me feel sick. And I was like, what? Okay. Obviously that relationship did not last very long. Yeah, of course not. <laughs> but I was, that was like the first adverse reaction that I'd had. And I was almost like, I can't believe you actually said that out loud. Even if you're thinking about it in your head, because my scar, it looked pretty gross at the time, I'm not gonna lie. Like my stitches hadn't even healed. Yeah. So it was still a bit open. And um. But I was just like, some things you just keep to yourself because I was already feeling uncertain about my body. Yeah. And I think it's that your my body goes through so many changes, changes all the time. Yeah. Like my weight fluctuates a lot. Like I recently started having breakouts. I was like, what is this? Yeah. And so then that affects how you're feeling about yeah. yourself. And it's your partner also understanding that like, my body's not gonna look the same. Your body changes as you age, yeah. your hormones change anyway, but it's that like my body is not even consistent sometimes on like a week by week basis. Mm. So how they respond to that as well. And I think a lot of the men that I have met have just been very unempathetic. It's just lacking in empathy. Do you know the men in my life who I've had the most support from my dad, who's yeah. both fantastic and useless at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> my dad's great. Like my dad was like, he'll buy me um, pads and tampons yeah. and stuff like that. But also his brand of empathy is, you've just got to power through. You've just got to keep on working. And I'm like, I'm in bed and I'm dying. <laughs> or I'll say to him, he'll be like, oh, how are you? I'm like, I'm having a flare up. And he's like, oh, that sounds bad. <laughs> Well, you never guess what? I just bought a new part for my lawnmower. So now I can make stripes in the grass. And I'm like, okay, dad, we're talking about me. Although I was just thinking, like, even though I'm I'm not living at home, if I asked my dad to go and buy me pads and stuff, I honestly wonder what he would bring back. My dad's quite good. He brought back like, um, when I first started having periods, I think I was about 10 yeah. when I had my first period. Okay. My dad would always go and buy me pads and he'd always bring back like a selection so I could choose for myself Aww, what I wanted. Nice. Like nighttime stuff, that's daytime that's stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. If I feel like if I genuinely needed it, my dad would go, but he'd get there, he'd get to the aisle and call me and be like, bruh. <laughs> which one? Tell me which one you want. What? And I'm like, okay, dad, it's called always. We need the, the daytime and the nighttime because it's a bit mad during the night. Um, oh, like, and and even that, like, I think, I think it's it's a case of men wanting to gain some understanding, and I think that's important. Like, yeah. you have to want to do that yeah. for your partner, yeah. and also, I think 
for yourself because you know that learning those things about your partner is making you a yeah. better person. It's making you more empathetic mm-hmm. to women around you in general. Mm-hmm. If you consider like statistically, um, nearly every single woman in the UK will have or present with a reproductive health problem yeah. at some point during her lifetime. There's literally no way as a man that you can escape knowing a woman with a reproductive health problem. Mm -hmm. The barrier is in the fact that we just don't really openly discuss it with each other. And a lot of the time we're not discussing it with men. Yeah, Like other men who I've, who are kind of like staples in my life. My cousin Ramon, he's absolutely fantastic. Mm. He's like comes to visit me in hospital when I'm in hospital. And I'm in a book club and the guys who are in my book club salt of the earth they're so fantastic like they're just so empathetic and understanding and like patient and caring like there was a couple of months where I wasn't even really participating in the book club because I was just not well and trying to like juggle too many things Mm. and they were just like it's fine just you know take time it's cool I think that's nice like changing the types of men that you also have relationships with and that you give space to in your life, Mm -hmm. that has been important for me. Because I think I've noticed, I've let a lot of men get away with being very selfish because I feel like I've always been socialized to give and never to ask for the things that I need or that I want. Jesus. And I was like, 2020, I'm not doing that anymore. (laughs) (laughs) There has to be some reciprocation. Mm. So. Like I do know some, like I've oh my god this is hilarious like I remember so this was when I was in was I in uni maybe like third year of uni or I had just finished um and this guy that I had been dating like on and off we were like super super close and there was a time I'd gone to his house and I stayed over and I started my periods it was day one and Mm. I was in agony like it was it was just Oh, one of the, the worst periods today. And like, I remember, right? I was just like, I'm in a lot of pain. He's like, why? And I was just like, I've come on my period. And this was both of our first experience of my period, mm. right? And he just looked, he was just like, I could see the panic on his face. Like, <laughs> I don't know what to do. And he's like, do you need anything? And I was like, I need some painkillers. Like, do you have any mm. pants? He was like, nah, he's like, all right. I'm gonna go as that, but like, like 10 minutes, I'm coming, I'm gonna jump in the car. I'm like, okay, I'm like, it's fine. Like I'm not dying, but I'm in severe pain. Yeah. I'm just like in his bed, bless him. Oh, he's so cute. I'm like, oh yeah. And he's gone and he's come back and he's come with like paracetamol, ibuprofen, a bagel and a croissant. Listen. And I can just tell you that wonderful. he got in the store. I'm, I'm, I'm panicked and was like, I'm gonna get her that, I'm gonna get her this and da, da, da. And like the whole time he's like, should I rub your back? Do you need anything? Like, it was it was so sweet, but I think it was like a learning curve yeah. for both of us just as people. Um, for him to kind of understand that most periods are not a walk in the park. Yeah. Some can be fucking awful and almost kind of like getting into gear and thinking, okay, mm. how can I help? Like, let me go and get you your favorite packet of, I don't know, crisps or something. Yeah. Like, things like that can make little a things. difference. Yeah. People like things that are personal to them yeah. like you i think sometimes particularly now i feel like people are really caught up in needing to do 
like or make really grand gestures honestly it's not that deep just bring me a donut when i'm bleeding Literally. like I'll, I'll be fine i'll be happy because it's the small thing it's the fact that you took the time to even think about yeah. that like my friend david he messaged me a couple of days ago and he was like i know that you mentioned last year that you're going to be going back into hospital next year and he was like i don't want you to be alone when you're recovering so he was like listen if you want me to come around and fry some plantain i'll come around oh you see that that's my <laughs> love language like, that <laughs> is so sweet particularly because and the thing is it I feel like as you start to get older as well, you really sort the wheat from the chaff in your relationships because me and David have only known each other since April or May this year. Not even that long. Don't even get it wrong when we're having this conversation, guys. Like this can be to your female friends as well. Oh my, yes. Like I've, I'm the kind of person where if a friend is like, oh my God, like I'm not well because I've got like the flu. I'm bringing a care package to your house because exactly. I'm just like, you know what, I, I want you to feel better. So yes. I'll like go to the store and get you all all kinds of medication. Mm. I might even pick up like a little ornament that I think is just kind of cute. I'll yeah. bring you flowers. I'll do all of that. Um, so we're definitely not here bashing men like, oh my God, men are shit. Because you can have some female friends that just don't know don't know how to empathize um, or don't know how to be there for you. But when, when they're in it, yeah. they're just like, oh my God, I can't believe that you didn't even check in on me to see that I was good. And I'm just like, mm. oh, yeah. really? Okay. Because Cause when I was dying in the trenches. When I was, there, when I was in the trenches, where were you? Where were you? Like <laughs> you were texting me asking if, like, if we're going to turn up on the weekend when you know how I'm, oh, like, so just empathy all yeah just empathy for for everybody have empathy for and everybody so much patience like if you've yeah. got friends and they've got a reproductive well-being issue don't stop <laughs> inviting them to things yeah just because they cancel a lot because honestly you feel alone and isolated enough as it is mm. like i want to keep getting invitations but i also need you to understand <laughs> that i may not come <laughs> i mean i feel like that <laughs> I anyway may say i'm coming and i'm good <laughs> and then on the day i just don't turn up yeah and that can just be sometimes and that's another thing i find really consistently i tell people people ask me how i am like i'm tired Mm -hmm. and i think people think that i mean like oh i'm tired like i didn't get enough sleep last night but when i say i'm tired what i mean is my body's physically exhausted it's not like regular tiredness and so sometimes if i say i'm not coming out to dinner because i'm tired like that's not just an excuse for me to sit in bed and like read a book all night it's because i'm actually just too physically drained and i have to really think about do I have enough energy to get up and go to work in this capitalist yeah. system Monday to Friday yeah. and then apply myself to all of these other areas of my life and just like taking care of myself mm. and just, I've had women say to me, oh, you're not a real woman if you can't have kids. You understand what it's like to be a woman when you have kids. I'm like, wow. screw you. Some of the, like, the worst comments that I've had have been women. from other women. Of course. Which is like, we we, we need to drop that out like so badly we really really do because i i I hate hearing things like that because i'm just like as women we should just naturally have like womanhood about us where we just support each other and not kind of do this whole oh i'm better than you because i'm i'm a mum or Mm. i'm a wife and you'll never understand until you've had kids or until you you get married or blah 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 because it's just utter bullshit um and if we can't support each other as women, like, how are we supposed to manage? Mm. Yeah. I think as well, it's just like really important if you're the person who's struggling with something mm. to 
really communicate what you need other people in your life to do or how you need them to yeah. respond when they tell you when you tell them certain things yeah. like and I think sometimes people don't actually ask you that like I've had maybe one person has said to me okay if you say that you're having a flare-up how do you want me to respond yeah. like what's the best way for me yeah, to respond yeah, at that yeah. time or in that moment and I think if you know that your friend is suffering with something or struggling with something you should be proactive in being yeah. the person who asks them that question because sometimes it's really difficult to if you consider it's difficult to advocate to a doctor and they're a stranger that you don't know <laughs> sometimes advocating to your own family and friends that is the hardest part mm. particularly because i think there's this the like trope of the strong black woman is yeah, so entrenched in how we see each other mm. and how we see ourselves and there's this idea that like well my grandma suffered with it my aunt suffered with it all of the women in my family have got something yeah. and they're surviving yeah. so people treat you like you shouldn't complain yeah. because well everyone's been struggling mm. and we've just made it through so what's so special about you when actually okay we're all struggling but we don't all have to be out here dying like we can address this and we can create a support system for ourselves for um so yeah i think we have to break down how we're discussing our pain and how we're discussing how our conditions are impacting us in our families and our close friendship circles mm -hmm. in order to have a better quality of life. Honestly, I agree with you. Um, I'm really pissed with because we're like almost out of time. No. I know. Um, <laughs> all right, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna do a tip tell. Okay. And then I'm gonna let you share where people can find you and find support because I, I really do feel like this is going to help a lot of women um, and men like if you also want to just understand or if you've got a woman in in your life going through any of this like mm -hmm. there's, there's nothing wrong with being like can I just get some information because this is very new to me yeah um, no one's going to judge you for wanting to get help okay so me and my ex-boyfriend booked a hotel just to Nyash. I'm gonna assume that means have sex. Um, I watched EastEnders very attentively just to, just to maybe prepare myself for what's to come. We hadn't had sex in two months. Oh, wow, that's a, that's a lot. Um, EastEnders finished and I switched off the TV immediately. I went to the toilet to check myself and also make myself easy, easily accessible. I get that. Um, after I did that, I came in and lay down on the bed. He was smoking a zoo, so at this point I joined him and we shared it. After we finished it, we began kissing. It was some deep kissing, some I miss you kissing. He then proceeded to intensely finger me. I love that shit. Um, and he did it the way that I like it, only clit touching, no vagina. He did this and after kissing me at the same time, this went on for about 10 minutes. I literally almost orgasmed 10 times. He kept whispering, do not bus. I'm, I'm gonna pause for like a split second. The word bus really turns me on. <laughs> I, like I have no idea why, but it proper turns me on. Anyway. I had to get up because if I did bus, I wouldn't want to have sex anymore. So I got up, gave him head and proper spit filled slimy head. Love that. 
Um, I even looked at him in his eyes. He whispered, you're making me feel some type of way. Then made me, I wish people would check their grammar. You're making me feel some kind of way. That made me give him head harder, sure. He literally started shaking. He was about to ejaculate and I stopped. He put me into missionary and done his thing. Um, he did doggy, collapsed doggy, floor doggy, pinned missionary, normal m- missionary and reverse cowgirl. That sounds like a workout. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna we, do it zero. Honestly. <laughs> We did about five rounds and in total had sex for five hours. It was the last time I had sex and also the best sex I've ever had. I think my vagina would be on fire. I but can't. Five hours is a long time. Like, I... That's, that's too much. There must have been breaks in Yeah, too. there had to be. Because even like, I probably couldn't do that much without having an orgasm and then be like, I'm out, I'm done. Don't touch yeah. me, move, I'm good. Um, but yes anyway guys as I said send your tip tells so I do thoroughly enjoy reading them and I'm going to read as many aloud on the show please check your grammar because it makes it easier for me to read because then I start sounding like I don't know English language and I don't know how to read <laughs> and I'm very capable of both of those things don't come and shame me on my own podcast anyway before we get out of here please let people know where they can check you out because I honestly think what you're doing is incredible you've been through some shit but the fact that you've been able to turn it into this I I find that amazing because I think it's very easy for anyone when they go through stuff to just kind of sit in a place of like hopelessness and be like Mm. this is my life now this is what I have to deal with but the fact that you're able to be like you know what I'm, I'm gonna make this a bigger thing to educate women and to help people to understand how to advocate for themselves, especially when it comes to your health, it's so important. Yes, let people know where they can find you. Just to say, some days I'm hopeless as well. So (laughs) it's not all like living on a high all the time. But yeah, Um, so you can find us uh, on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We've got a Facebook page and a Facebook group, which... I'm gonna be my New Year's resolution. Gonna be more committed to the Facebook group because yeah. I haven't been. Um, it's just at the womb room. Um, you can find. You can go to our website. I almost forgot about that. You can go to our <laughs> website, um, which is thewombroom.co.uk. Yep. Um, you can email us hello at thewombroom.co.uk as well. Like if you've got a personal query or a question, um, I have some really great friends who are doctors and nurses and nutritionists and so sometimes they will like help people out Mm. um yeah we're doing some filming this year so we're filming like women talking about their experiences because i think like visibility is really important yeah um and i'm really interested in making black women more visible in sharing their stories so like yeah you can contact us if you want to get involved or if you know somebody who might want to get involved, yeah. Um, if you're a very big company or you work for one, <laughs> would like to give us some money for to keep real. Doing our work, you can it send helps. all the coins our way. Yeah. Thanks. Um, but yeah, just like connect with us. We're gonna be doing some pretty good stuff this year. Different events, a digital series is coming out. Yeah. I'm currently writing a book. I'll see. I've said it on the podcast, so now so, I yeah, have to com- yeah. complete it. I have to finish writing yeah, it. Yeah, no, you do. Um, but yeah, I'm writing a book. 
um, at the moment. It's not actually about my life. It's about like other women's experiences, mm. but I'm excited for that. That's so. very exciting. I'm excited yeah. to see what, what this year does for you. Thank like, you. I think it will be I'm very excited. cool. I'm excited. Good. Um, guys, thank you so much for listening. As I said earlier on, you can follow me at just George, just underscore Georgette, sorry, on Twitter and Instagram. You can follow the podcast at just the tip pod on Twitter and Instagram. And yes, I'll be back with another episode very soon. Bye bye. I know you wanna. I know you wanna. I know you wanna. Yeah. Me, I play. I like to play cheek too.